been by lately, it's, it's even uh, gone up a little bit quicker than that, so everything is still on schedule. Uh, the folks tell us they think they'll be done hopefully sometime mid-July with their part, and then we have about six weeks of things that we need to get done. So right now, as of today, we are penciling in, very much in pencil and can be erased, uh, the last Sunday in August. So it'll be after the school year starts. Everybody will be home for vacation. The 30th of August is our, our hopeful moving date. We, again, that could, that could change. It won't move up any. It could move, could move back a little, but we will keep you posted. Um, again, could I get a little more light from this side? I don't know. Maybe they've moved the lights because of the, uh, because of the play that's coming up. But if there's any way to get a little more, that would be helpful for me. Uh, we are in Matthew's Gospel. We have been looking last fall at the words of Jesus, and now uh, this winter and spring we're going to be looking at the works of Jesus. Dan Doriani uh, did a wonderful job. I got to listen to that podcast of the introduction to this sermon, uh, part of the sermon series last Sunday. If you didn't get a chance to hear that, if you were gone, a lot of us were on the Homes of Hope trip. We were able to build four houses in a couple days. The greenhouse was clearly the best one, but... Um, but and we'll have a, we'll have an actual uh, serious report on that in a in a few weeks. But that was a great weekend. There were 42 folks from Green Tree, another 30. I think it were 72 altogether, from little ones all the way up to old guys like me. Uh, and it was a wonderful experience. But Dan preached last Sunday and introduced uh, the miracles, the works of Jesus. And we're going to continue in that this morning. We're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 8, and we're going to be studying verses 23 through 27. So you can turn there in your Bible or your phone or your touchpad or you can follow it on the screen in just a couple of minutes. But I want you to think about your fears this morning. I want you to think about things or experiences or circumstances or people, perhaps, that make you afraid. I have a couple of fears. Uh, one of them is not just a fear of heights, but it's actually being up in a skyscraper. I don't have a problem with heights. You know, I, I've climbed mountains before. Those kind of heights don't bother me. I get on airplanes occasionally. Those kind of heights don't bother me. But there's something about standing on a skyscraper. So that's the view looking down from the Empire State Building. And I have actually stood there before against the wall like this outside on that, on that patio area and haven't quite gotten close enough to the edge to look down that far. But those kind of buildings just really, really bother me. I was in a, in a very small fender bender the first year we moved back to St. Louis. I, I was hit by an, an elderly woman, and her insurance company called me that day, and apparently she was in the habit of running into folks. So they wanted to settle quickly, and they said, if you can get down here by the end of business, we'll, uh, we'll give you, cut you a check for $1,000. I think the car I was driving was worth about fifty. So I was ready to do that, and I got down there and found out that their offices were on the 20th floor. And I literally st stood there and thought, is, is this worth $1,000 or not? So I'm not big on skyscrapers. My other fear is I saw Jaws when I was in high school, and so uh, I don't like to get around sharks. And if you notice, that shark is smiling at whoever is taking that picture, and that's because he was looking at lunch, and he was very excited about that possibility. Now, those fears are, quite frankly, silly, right? I don't have to get in the ocean. I don't, I don't have to be anywhere near something that's bigger than me and is hungry, and, and is a meat eater. I can avoid that situation. That's why I'll probably never go on a cruise my entire life. Um, I don't have to go up in tall buildings, but if I do, like I went up in the Empire State Building, wasn't a big chance that it was going to fall over that day because somebody put the bolts in the wrong way, right? Those are, those are kind of silly fears, but we all probably have 
some phobias. But that's not what we're talking about this morning. We're talking about real fears. We're talking about real life issues. You know, those things where you, where you wake up in the middle of the night and your eyes are wide open and you know you're not going back to sleep. And you know it's because you're afraid. Not, you're not afraid of the boogeyman coming out of your closet and getting you. But you have a circumstance in your life, maybe a health issue, maybe a financial issue. We, I, I noticed this week that a friend of ours, we actually have known this couple since before they got married. We knew them when they were college students at Covenant College um, on Lookout Mountain, and she has been diagnosed with a brain tumor. And she doesn't know how long she has to live. That's scary. And there are people in this room that are in those kinds of struggles this morning. And even if you're not in that kind of life-altering circumstance, chances are when I said, think about something of which you're afraid, you probably didn't have to think that long. You're probably not still sitting there going, I just don't have any fears in my life. Probably all of us have some very serious issues. The situation we're going to look at this morning, we're tempted to read by it because we've probably heard it. If we've been in the church for a while, we've probably heard this story or this type of story many, many times, and it doesn't seem that spectacular to us anymore. Some of the sheen maybe has worn off. But I want us to go back and revisit it because it speaks to both the authority and the compassion of Jesus. And both of those are incredibly important to your life and to mine. Matthew chapter 8, verses 23 through 27, just five short verses here, the word of God. It's speaking about Jesus and it says, when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. We got 13 guys in the boat. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he, being Jesus, was asleep. And they, the disciples, went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? And then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, what sort of man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him? This is the reading of God's holy and perfect word. To him alone be glory. Let's pray. Father, we come this morning confessing that we have very real fears in our lives. Father, we're also gathered in this place because probably, probably most of us here want to have a deep and abiding faith. We want to have uh, the ultimate answer in life. We want to, to know that we are of significance, that we are loved by you, that we are cared for by you. And yet, Lord, we have very real fears in our lives. So, Lord, I pray that as we come to this text this morning, we wouldn't just skip by it and go, oh, yeah, that's the time Jesus calmed the storm. Uh, but rather, by your grace and, and by your Holy Spirit, you would put us in the boat, so to speak, and you would allow us to see the, uh, the real fear that was happening at that moment and what Jesus had to say about it because it's what he has to say to us today as well. So, Lord, I pray that your spirit would open our hearts and our minds, that you would teach us. Forgive me my sin, Father. Please don't let me stand in the way of what you want us to know and to learn from this passage this morning. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, let me begin by giving you the sermon in a sentence so you'll know kind of where we're headed overall this morning. It's a pretty simple one. Jesus has both the authority and the compassion to command our trust. When Jesus calls us to trust him, that's not just, you know, like a friend putting their, putting their arm around you saying, you know, you can trust me. I'll try to help you all I can. Rather, this is the king of kings and this is the Lord of lords. 
And this is the one who is full of all grace and all mercy and all kindness. And therefore, he can not just suggest that we trust him, not just suggest that we put our faith in him, but he commands our trust. Let me just remind you of the larger setting of this particular passage of Scripture, not just the actual boat ride itself. The disciples had witnessed uh, recently the Sermon on the Mount. At the end of chapter 7, the Sermon on the Mount ends, and it says that the people who heard the sermon, which includes these disciples, marveled at Jesus, saying he teaches as one who has authority, not like our scribes and our Pharisees, not like the, the regular teachers. We'll come back to their, uh, the thought on that authority in just a couple minutes. But they had heard the sermon. They had also witnessed and experienced Jesus' healing power. If you read in chapter 8 up to this point, you will see that Jesus commands authority not only in his word, in his teaching, as we saw in Matthews 5, 6, and 7, the Sermon on the Mount, but he also uh, has authority over man and women's physical well-being. We see the healing of the leper. We see the healing of the servant of the centurion. Dan talked on that last week. And then after that and before Jesus gets in the boat, we learn of his healing of Peter's mother and then many, many people coming to him that evening for healing. The disciples have witnessed all of this. They have had ringside seats. They haven't missed a moment. Clearly, Jesus is powerful both in word and deed. And therefore, you and I, as we read this text, we would say, well, the disciples should trust Jesus in all circumstances. There's no question about that. You can, you can see it right there on the pages of Scripture. And yet, as we read on, we're going to see that they're now confronted with another challenge to their faith. Much like you and I are today, this week, this month, this year. So the way we're going to look at this passage is we're going to make some observations about the disciples first. Then we're going to go back and we're going to go through the passage again. And we're going to make some observations about Jesus. And then we'll ask a couple of life application questions. So first let's talk about our fellow disciples. The first observation and we just mentioned is that they were witnesses of Jesus' authoritative teaching and healing. You can find that again in Matthew 5 through 8. But just as a quick reminder, and Dan pointed this out last week, Jesus' authority in his teaching was found in his comments as he spoke the Sermon on the Mount. He didn't say, thus saith the Lord. He never said, I've heard this from God. What Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount is, it's true because I say it. Therefore, you should believe it. In other words, Jesus was claiming authority in his teaching, and the disciples saw that. And at the end of the sermon, they said, yeah, <laughs> yeah, he has some type of authority that we've never seen before in our lives. That We've never heard anyone speak like this. It wasn't just that he was speaking these claims, but there was, there was a, an authority in his voice that made you think, you know what, he really does have the authority to speak for God. But they also saw his ability to heal. He saw a leper come to him and say, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus said, I'm willing, be clean. And he was. He saw, uh, uh, they saw a centurion come to him and said, my servant is sick and, and on death's doorstep, gravely ill. And I know you have the authority, you have the power, you can speak the word and heal him. And that's what happened. They saw Peter's mother-in-law be healed. They saw many people come to the doorstep of the, of the house that night and experience healing. They were witnesses firsthand of Jesus' authority. Second observation in this text in particular is that they find themselves in the middle of a, of a gale force 
storm. And they are in fear for their lives. In verse 24, Matthew writes, And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. And this is the part that I, that I don't want us to skip over too quickly. You hear it so often, you read it so often, that you're like, oh yeah, that was the night the storm came up. <laughs> Remember within this group, there are experienced sailors. There are several fishermen within this group who had lived their entire lives on the Sea of Galilee. They knew how to handle a boat. They had been in plenty of storms before. They had been on the lake and seen storms come and go, and up to this point, they had survived every one of them. So for these guys to be worried about their lives meant they were in the middle of a serious situation, and we not, ought not take that lightly. We ought not skim by that. So many of us have, have heard the saying in a history class or when someone gives a speech uh, going back to Roosevelt, uh, Franklin Roosevelt's first inaugural address, right? All we have to fear is what? Fear itself, right? I'll give you the first paragraph. It's actually where the quote is found. March the 4th, 1933, I am certain that my fellow Americans expect that on my induction into the presidency, I will address them with a candor and a decision with the present situation of our, that our people impel. This is preeminently the time to speak the truth, the whole truth, frankly and boldly. Nor need we shrink from honestly facing conditions in our country today. This great nation will endure as it has endured, will uh, revive and will prosper. So first of all, let me assert my firm belief that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself, nameless, unreasoning, unjustified terror which paralyzes needy efforts to be converted from retreat to advance. Now, I, I don't want to make light of the president's words, but he never stood in a stoop line in his life. He was never one to go without food or clothing. And at the time of that speech, 25% of the American workforce that were eligible for work could not find a job. They were in the heart of the Depression. And while I appreciate the president's words, and they were certainly inspiring to those who heard them that day, I would suggest that there actually were serious problems facing the country. And I'm not suggesting that Roosevelt didn't understand that. Of course he did. But he was seeking to inspire. He was seeking to speak with assurance. He was seeking to speak with authority. Why? Because there were real problems. The disciples were in fear of their lives for good reason. They might drown in the next few minutes. My third observation is not only that they were witnesses of Jesus' authoritative teaching and healing, that they were in the middle of a serious storm, but that they cried out to Jesus in desperation that may or may not have been a cry of faith. Look at verse 25, if you would. And they went and they woke him because he was asleep, and we'll come back to that in a few minutes, saying, save us, Lord, we are perishing. You see that they came to Jesus desperate in their condition. It doesn't say they came to him in faith. In fact, when we look at Jesus' response, we'll see that he's questioning how much faith they actually have. And there's a good lesson here for us this morning is when do we come to Jesus? Do we come to Jesus on a daily basis as a part of the ebb and flow of every moment of our lives? Do we come to the feet of Jesus in moments of great peace and serenity when, when actually for a few minutes of life everything seems to be going in, in a pretty good direction? Our family was together over Christmas and a lot of you said, how was it? And it was the first time actually in two years that we'd all been together at the same place uh, and 
been three years since we'd all actually been together in St. Louis. And so my, my answer has been, well, A, we had a great time. Everybody got along. Katie and I didn't even fight. It was really quite remarkable. And she and I were together for almost three weeks. And, and we just had a tremendous time together. But also what I would say to people is it seems like everybody's doing okay right now. It seems like there, there's, there's no real reason to fear right now because everybody seems to be doing okay. How does that affect my prayer life for my children? Does that mean I pray less? Does that mean I, I only need Jesus when I'm desperate, when maybe something goes wrong in one of my children's life, when they struggle with something, when maybe they have a health issue or they have a, a job issue or that sort of thing? Is that really faith? The disciples quite clearly are crying out in desperation. And I would suggest that you and I have been in those moments also where we've cried out in desperation, but do we cry out at other times? Do we have an ongoing relationship with the Lord Jesus that's based, based on faith, not on circumstances? The disciples are crying out. But they're also saved. They're also rescued. And that's my last observation about the disciples in verse 27. Uh, in verse 26, they, that Jesus rose and he, he rebukes the wind and the sea. And now there's a great calm. And here's what verse 27 says. And the men marveled. They were astonished. They were dumbfounded. They were shocked, saying, what sort of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? Put those two things together. Jesus, don't you care about us? We're perishing. Jesus, do something. Five minutes later, I can't believe he did something, right? There's just the, it's hard to put those two things together until I look in the mirror and go, oh, yeah, that's, that's kind of how I live my life sometimes. They're still learning about the authoritative nature of Jesus. They're still learning that he is the one in whom they can trust unequivocally with all of their lives. And I would say there's a lesson for you and for me this morning as well. It is a journey. Faith is a journey. When you come to Christ, when you come to him for salvation, you come by faith, correct? That's the only way you can come to Jesus. You don't come to Jesus saying, now I'm going to give you this and then you're going to give me this, right? Say, I'm going I'm to earn my salvation and then you're going to pay me for what I earn, no, you come to Jesus in faith saying, Lord, I'm a sinner. I'm broken. I'm lost. I can't save myself. But I'm trusting that what you did on the cross took the punishment that I deserve, and I am now placing my faith in you. That faith is an ongoing process. It gets deeper as the years go by. And the disciples are getting a faith lesson. And they're in the process. So there are our fellow disciples, and I, and I hope that I've painted a clear enough picture that you and I can see ourselves in the boat, can see ourselves on that faith journey, and seeing times when, when we come in desperation, but not necessarily out of belief, uh, knowing that Jesus is authoritative, but not being probably as mature in our faith as we should be. What about Jesus? Let's look at some observations about him this morning. My first observation, the obvious one, is that he has a full assurance of the authority that the Father has bestowed upon him. Jesus is the one guy in the boat. There are 13 guys in the boat. He's the one guy that's not worried about anything. Look at verse 24. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he was asleep. <laughs> now, you can't just attribute that to take it. What is that medicine you take when you get on the plane and you want to go to sleep? You're on a long flight. What, what is that? Yeah, Ambien, right? You can't attribute. Jesus didn't pop an Ambien before he got in the back of the boat. Okay? What you attribute it to is his lordship. 
is his authority, of Jesus knowing that nobody was going to take his life away from him. When it was time to lay it down, he would lay it down. When it was time to pick it up, he would take it back up again. That's the authority that the Father gave him. So maybe the wind and the waves were excited to see Jesus. Maybe he hadn't been on the Sea of Galilee for a while, and the wind and the waves are rejoicing, and they're celebrating by blowing as hard as they can and crashing as much as they can because that's wind and waves at their best. And, and maybe Jesus is just relaxed and got rocked to sleep enjoying the worship of creation. I don't know, maybe I'm reading something in the text that isn't there, but Jesus is in full confidence of his authority. And so as there seems to be, from a human perspective, a devastating experience about to happen, Jesus is asleep. But not only is Jesus in full assurance of the authority that his Father has given him, but he takes the opportunity to continue his teaching ministry. We're not sitting on the side of a hill anymore. It's not a bright, sunny day, and we're listening to the Sermon on the Mount with our, with our mouths open, just uh, amazed at what we're hearing. We're now in fear for our lives, and Jesus offers one simple sentence, but he offers it with authority. Oh, you of little faith, why are you afraid? Why have you misjudged this situation? Jesus probably had to shout this over, over the torrent of the rain, over the howling of the wind. So Jesus probably didn't say, hey, guys, come here for a minute. Oh, you of little faith, why are you afraid? You know, he probably had to shout that. He probably had to, had, to, had to make sure that they could hear him in the back of the boat. But Jesus is always looking for the opportunity to teach the lesson. Why are you afraid, oh, you of little faith? He wants them to connect their fear with their lack of faith. He wants them to be able to understand why they're feeling the way they're feeling. And he wants them to understand they're feeling fear because they've lost their focus on, on him and their trust in his authority. That they're crying out of desperation, not necessarily out of faith. And there's an opportunity here for Jesus to say, gentlemen, you need to connect the dots. You need to know that when I give you my care, that it is ongoing and it is strong and it will not fail. And you can trust in me. And Jesus is teaching us or offering us that same lesson this morning. I'm not saying that there aren't things in our life that, that strike fear into our hearts. There are. And to suggest otherwise would be to ignore our humanity and would to pretend we're like some super Christians that we really aren't because nobody really is. But also we need to acknowledge that there are times when we become consumed with the fear or the object of our fear, ill health, uh, money situation, whatever the case may be, and, and we get so fixated on that that it's as if Jesus never existed. It, it's what a, a friend of mine calls um, uh, circumstantial atheism. <laughs> at that moment, our faith is of no value because at that moment, our faith has dissipated. And yet Jesus is willing, even when we find ourselves in that spot, Jesus is willing to teach us and to ask us the poignant question and to bring us back to where we need to be, people of faith not people of fear. I want to also note in uh, verse 26 that Jesus is in complete control of his creation. So he turns to the disciples and he shouts out, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? And then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. Notice those words carefully. There was a great calm. Jesus said, oh, you're scared. We can take care of that. And he turns to the winds and the waves. And, and basically in the, in, in the Greek, in one word, it's just still. Stop. Okay. 
it's like you've got a, a brand new puppy dog and it's running all over the place. And you look at it sternly and say, still, it kind of stopped, okay? And the winds and the waves stopped. And now I have a feeling, oh, this is in the text. The disciples just looked at each other and go, oh, great. Now we got to get out the oars because there's no wind at all. Now we got to row all the way across the lake. What were we thinking, right? Jesus brings complete calm because why? That's what Jesus does to our troubled souls, to our fears. Jesus has complete authority, and he can bring complete calm. It doesn't mean he's going to take us out of the storm that we're in presently. It doesn't mean that the, the friend I mentioned earlier in the, in, the, in the sermon doesn't mean that she's going to experience healing in this side of heaven. I can't speak to that. Only God can. But I know how the story is written. I know the end. I know that our hope will not disappoint us. That ultimately we don't dwell in, in buildings made with human hands, but we have a dwelling in heaven with the one who has saved us and redeemed us. And he exercises his authority on our behalf, which is so radically different than most humans who have absolute or, or significant amounts of authority. John Dahlberg was the 19th century British historian and, and, uh, and scholar. He's also a politician, and he was the one who coined this phrase, power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Great men are almost always bad men. And I would say that our society lives under that creed. We are very skeptical and very, very nervous about people in power, and there are a lot of reasons. Dahlberg points out, you know, that's clear that power can corrupt. But how does Jesus use absolute, complete authority at his fingertips? He uses it to control his creation in order to bring a peace to his men so that they can know the better pathway is not fear, but is faith. And that's why Jesus has both the authority and the compassion to command your trust this morning and to command mine. So there are a couple of life applications that I think we ought to look at before we wrap this up this morning. The first is this. It is easy to trust Jesus when the lake is calm and we have a gentle breeze in our sails. But I would ask the question, is that really trust? Is that really faith? Or is that us feeling more like we're in control of our circumstances? That we're, that we're kind of the captain of the ship and everything's okay right now. And it's almost as if we can set Jesus aside and say, Jesus, I'll, I'll call you when I need you. And I want to challenge us that if that is the depth of our faith or if that is the definition of our faith, if you're sitting here this morning or if I'm standing here this morning saying, I will trust Jesus as long as everything's okay, that is no faith. That is actually fear expressing itself in a different form. And so while it may look like faith and it may be easy, it's actually not the pathway we want to trod this morning because we know that this life is full of storms that cannot be ignored. If you get a bad physical report from your doctor, you would be a fool to ignore it. If you, if you look at your finances and let them get out of control and spend twice as much money as you earn, you're a fool to do that. You will end up in a bad spot. Circumstances of our lives, the challenges of our lives, the storms of our lives cannot nor should they be ignored. However, they must be seen in the context of Jesus' authority as well as his compassion and his kindness, and his grace. In other words, Jesus commands that we trust him by faith, even in life's, and maybe most importantly, in life's toughest moments. So if you want to boil it down to, to just one or two simple questions, I, I think you have to ask, the first one is, what am I facing this morning that maybe feels bigger than Jesus' ability to care for me? 
Is there something in my life right now in this moment when I go, oh my goodness, everything's out of control. And, and it seems like even Jesus can't, can't kind of rein it in and, and calm the, the wind and the waves of your life. Followed by the second question is, am I focusing on Jesus or am I focusing on the storm? And which way is the pathway of faith? So I told you about my, our friend who we, we don't see very often at all. I don't think I've seen him probably in the last six or eight months. But they live here in St. Louis, and, so we, and we do know them well from over the years. Here's what she wrote on, uh, on Facebook this morning. So here's the deal. I can just hear her say this. It's not how I wanted it to go, but the Lord has a different way of seeing things. This week I was diagnosed with an aggressive form of brain tumor called, and I'm not even going to begin to to try and pronounce these two words. I had it uh, uh, resected and am recovering well. So whether I have 18 months or 18 years, Job said it right when he said this to his friends. The Lord gives. The Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. I'll tackle it with everything I have. So here we go. My friend is not the hero of this story, but my friend is an example of putting your faith in the one who is. Will you pray with me? Father, we pray for ourselves this morning as well as our our brothers and sisters around us. Lord, we pray. I pray for my friend who, who's had this terrible diagnosis this week. Things of which we, from a human perspective, should uh, experience a lot of fear. A lot of anxiety. And yet, Lord Jesus, you have shown us in your word that you have all authority. Last week we saw your authority over the, the, the physical nature of man to bring healing, to bring, uh, to bring wholeness where there was brokenness, where there was illness and disease. Father, this morning we see that you gave the Lord Jesus complete authority over all of creation, over the, over the cosmos, over the, over the natural world. And he used that authority to teach a lesson of faith to his disciples and to teach that lesson to us this morning. So Lord, help us to hear what the Spirit is saying to the church, that we would live more by faith, less by fear, because we trust and rest in the one who loves us and cares for us and will see us home soon. We pray in his name. Amen.